Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, What the Beep? Diehards Refuse to Let Go of Their Pagers by Ariana Perez Castells. Then an article by Jason Gay, The One Column You Must Read Before You Die. Then we'll do an article by Susie Welch, For Generation Z, Unemployment Can Be a Blast. And then Vivek Ramawani has an article, The Case for an Older Voting Age. And then we'll follow that up with an article by Joe Queenan, The Ugly World of Add-on Fees on Everything. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, What the Beep Diehards Refuse to Let Go of Their Pagers. When Brittany Bankhead, a trauma surgeon in Lubbock, Texas, got her first pager in 2011, she felt like she was stepping into the big leagues. The first day you receive one, it feels like a rite of passage, she says. You take it, you look at it, you hold it, you feel like you're in the movies. These days, of course, most people have gone to smartphones. Though she's had the option of trading in her pager for an app on her phone, Bankhead hasn't parted with the little beeping box. It's hard to explain to outsiders what it means to be in the paging world and why we have such a love-hate relationship with them, she says. Pagers, those pre-cell phone one-way devices that alert the carrier that someone is trying to reach them, can seem like something out of a time capsule. The nation's leading paging company, Spock, says it has at least 800,000 pagers in use across the country. The company had 6.6 million pagers in use in 2004. There are people who just refuse to let their pagers go, including some doctors and bird watchers. They say pagers allow them to separate parts of their life in a way phones don't, and that the lower-tech one-way communication of a pager is less distracting than looking at a phone full of alerts and apps. Dick Philby founded Rare Bird Alert in 1991 to share news of sightings via pager around the UK. Pagers proved to be a solution to the problem of quickly sharing bird sightings with several people at the same time. One of the best pages he remembers sending out was in regard to a long-billed murrelet, a bird that usually lives in Asia, but has been seen off the Devon coast. A mega alert was sent out on the pagers and people flocked to the area to try and get a glimpse of it. The company now has a phone app that mimics the pagers function and can do even more, including showing maps and pictures of birds. But he says some customers still use the pager. For many of them, the reason they keep their pagers is because of that separation. It's the separation of their passion with everything else on their phone, says Philby. Rob Lampert, a birder and environmental historian at the University of Nottingham, uses his pager to get up-to-date information about bird sightings in the UK. 
I literally have a pacemaker on my body, he says. It literally governs where I go every day and certainly on the weekends. He says his sister has asked him to take it off the dinner table at family meals. In hospitals, secure text messaging by phones has overtaken the use of pagers, according to a recent study. Some physicians tell horror stories about the insistent, inescapable messaging from pagers. But Dr. Meredith Barrett, assistant professor of transplant surgery at the University of Michigan, still carries around a bedazzled pager with stick-on, sparkly plastic gems. You know, I don't hate pagers, she says, though a friend told her to say they're terrible. She likes the simplicity of the one-way communication, which allows her to process the page before responding and gives her a measure of control. Bankhead notes that sometimes her pager works in places where her phone doesn't. They're like the cockroaches of the healthcare system, she says. They won't go away. And she appreciates the divide between professional and personal life it provides. Her kids have never heard it go off because she mostly keeps it in her Jeep when she's not on call. Another advantage of the pager? It's easy for staff to throw one in frustration instead of turning on each other, according to Dr. Tom McCarthy, an orthopedic surgeon in Fall River, Massachusetts. Tired during a busy on-call night once, he chucked his pager in a closet where it broke. He gave up his pager when he got his current job and transitioned over to the apps on his phone. Now, though, when he gets a message on his phone, it's awkward to answer it, he says. If he's looking at the phone, he worries patients might wonder what he's paying attention to while with a pager, it's obvious it's work. He has multiple apps on his phone. Last year, his hospital adapted the fourth app that connects him to patients. When a patient wants to reach him, he gets a message with a phone number. He then has to call that number to get a message with the patient's phone number. The mute function on the apps is easily overridden by alerts. So to separate work for home life, he keeps his phone on silent altogether, he says. He often misses messages from family and friends because of that. He used to complain about his pager, yet now appreciates its ease. I was constantly ranting about how this is ridiculous that we use technology from the 80s when we have a computer in our pocket, he says. Now that I have that, I'm screaming to get my pager back. In one hospital recently, pagers experienced a brief comeback. Monterey, California was hit with heavy wind and rain in March, causing cell phone and electricity outages in the area of Community Hospital of the Monterey Peninsula, according to the safety officer at the hospital, Daniel McKernan. The solution? On-call medical staff who lived in areas with no cell service due to the storm received pagers so they could go home instead of being lodged at the hospital and be alerted if needed. I had a little fun showing my friends that I was carrying this brick around. Got a little laugh out of it, says Andrew Radcliffe, a registered nurse who received a pager. In the end, there was no need to send a page but hospital officials are revisiting their emergency plan. They're assessing how many more pagers to buy. And now, the one column you must read before you die. 90,000 years ago, when I worked in a business called Glossy Magazines, 
There was a quirky but widely believed rule that said if you were going to promote an advice story on the cover, it was always better to promote advice in numbers because human beings couldn't resist a sweet, delicious number. Better yet, the number should be an odd number because the human eye was more tantalized by odd numbers than even ones. In other words, if you were choosing between a headline of 100 ways to pogo stick across Canada and 99 ways to pogo stick across Canada, it was advisable to go with the number 99. Maybe you'd go with 97 ways to pogo stick across Canada just to stand out on a newsstand. Lastly, you change the word ways to secrets because who doesn't like being let in on a secret? Then you'd have 97 secrets to pogo stick across Canada and voila, a magazine hit. I have zero idea if any of this worked. None. I don't even know how to pogo stick. But I do know that our obsession with numbered advice continues and in our digitalized short attention world, the go-to number for advice has been distilled all the way down to the number one. That's it. One, it's everywhere you look on the internet. The one mistake every tarantula owner makes. The one pair of pants every traveler must steal. The one state to stop taking calls from. It's not Connecticut. And of course, the one sure way to get abs. I'm as guilty as anyone. Recently, I published a sports column with the headline, The One Man You Don't Want to Meet in the NBA Playoffs wasn't exactly an advice column. It was about Miami's Jimmy Butler, but the old magazine rule still applied. I craved your eyeballs. As one should, of course. There's no shame in wanting the widest possible audience. But the rule of one is going to absurd lengths, especially on social media, where TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and other feeds team with overly simplistic advice disguised as insight. Who has time to read 99 bits of wisdom anymore, or even 97? In a world where everything must now be reduced to a seven-second snippet, we're told that life satisfaction can be achieved simply by doing this one thing. On my feed, this one-note advice is usually delivered by stern-looking men with thrice-divorced energy who tell me I am a moron if I didn't rent six rental houses by the age of 11 or if I'm not eating enough bison jerky for dinner, or if I'm still doing crunches. It doesn't matter if this advice is practical or even accurate. Within seconds, I've already moved on to the next social media guru who's telling me a secret. The secret to infinite happiness. The secret every golf-playing parrot knows. The secret to making your own bison jerky. It's, is it even a secret? Who cares? All that's important as you, is that you think it is. The human obsession with advice is nothing new. Cave people gave advice. I'm sh- pretty sure Plato did infomercials on ancient Greek television. The shelves in Earth's remaining bookstores remain flush with confident titles written by experts and lay people promising newfound energy, advancement, and joy. It's mostly nonsense, of course. As we age, we learn that life is rich with complications and nuance. People and situations are wildly different. What works for you might not work for others. 
The notion that a single bit of wisdom can profoundly change a life is highly spurious, bordering on deception. As my father used to wisely say as he handed me a piece of bison jerky, if it were so easy, why isn't everyone doing it? It isn't. And yet we can't help ourselves. More than ever, we need to know the one thing. Especially if it's a secret. Then I really have to know. And now Susie Welch. For Generation Z, unemployment can be a blast. As a regular old capitalist boomer gal teaching bright and shiny young MBA students, I sometimes find myself wondering if Generation Z is brilliant or bonkers. Burnout, self-care boundaries, they need and want them all. But because I love my students and they so often surprise me with their profound self-awareness, boundless creativity, and poignant longing to save the planet, I usually delight in the discrepancies in our understanding of how the world works. It will all sort itself out in the end, I tell myself, when they bump into reality. But my equanimity was recently tested for the first time in a while. With graduation looming and summer almost upon us, when my students started throwing around the words, fun employment, as in, I'll work when I work, until then, I'll just do some fun employment. I literally screamed in class the first time a student casually mentioned that fun employment was her next step in life. What, 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 I cried. Are you literally saying fun employment, like unemployment can be fun? My students burst into laughter. Yes, exactly, they assured me, it can be. In class and then afterwards, they threw out all sorts of ways. Going to a vegan sanctuary in Madrid for a few months, mountain climbing in Peru, volunteering with refugees in Greece for five hours a day in return for room and board, attending Burning Man, and then taking some quality time to recover. In a flash, I was reminded of the time Kim Kardashian broke the internet when she said her best advice for women in business was to get your effing A up and work. The metaverse cleaved in two. People under a certain age were indignant at the suggestion that the system wasn't rigged against them, rendering hard work pointless. People over a certain age were muttering to themselves, Oh, I didn't realize Kim Kardashian was actually smart. I generally don't try to talk my students out of their values. They've come to them the same way my generation did ours. Life experience. Generation Z has known limited, read no, economic or geopolitical stability, and because of social media, their view of the world is both more intimate and more vast than I can fully understand. In one minute, they can bounce between a romantic crisis playing out on Instagram and Twitter posts of a school shooting. When they look up, they see artificial intelligence, which Warren Buffett recently linked to the atomic bomb, hurtling towards them. In this context, if boomer values rankle them and they'd like to make up a new set, so be it. But fun employment? The idea that not having a job or even the prospect of one could be pleasant, delightful, and yes, even desirable. This steams a level up from wanting work-life balance. It makes even quiet quitting, 
which is really another way of saying I want to work 9 to 5 in an 8 to 8 industry seem tame. Since I first heard about fun employment in class, I have been testing it out on everyone I meet. Generation Zers I know have received my queries with amusement. Fun employment is so much a part of their vernacular, how could I not know about it? Don't get all worked up about it either, they said. No one wants to stay unemployed forever. I made a point as well to seek out a few students who I knew were on scholarship. How, I asked them, are people affording fun employment? I was met with shrugs. You just do, I was told. My children and their friends, millennials mostly in mid-level corporate jobs, also shrugged off my amazement. To a person, they were familiar with the term, but with a bit of eye-rolling. My daughter's 30-something friend observed, I think Generation Z might be hiding this from you all. Clever. She might be right. My own cohort has responded to my fun employment survey with what can only be described as weariness. I have a friend who runs a large media company and employs an army of Generation Zers. We often exchange dispatches from the front. She tells me about the young editor who left a meeting with the explanation, I have to go meet the plumber. I tell her about the student who reported her homework would be great because she was attending a Harry Styles concert. In our day, we agree, we never have missed out of work midday or skipped the deadline, or at least we'd have come up with better excuses. When I tested fun employment on her, she texted back wryly, I guess we were truly the joyless generation. Another friend, an executive in financial marketing, said, You must be joking. Then again, why am I not surprised? A third wrote, I remember when unemployment was bad and scary, back in the good old days. But I wonder, were the old days so good after all? I spent decades working seven days a week. If you count answering emails during my son's wrestling matches and dictating client memos at birthday parties, and never took a real vacation, or at least one without bouts of panic and guilt. I know I am not alone. My cohort wore this life like a badge of honor. I still love my job and am proud of my career, but maybe it would have turned out okay anyway without all that angst, not just for me, but for everyone whose life I touched. Sometimes when the generation's ears in my midst suggest that they're opting out of our approach to work, my self-righteous defensiveness breaks down to something closer to mere dismay. We won't have a verdict until we see how Generation Z's values play out for their lives. Until then, I'll be left mulling whether fun employment and Generation Z's other innovations are brilliant or bonkers. Maybe I'm asking it about the wrong generation after all. And now, the case for an older voting age. America is losing its national pride. Only 23% of adults under 30 say patriotism is very important to them, and 23% of Americans under 25 vote. Here's a counterintuitive solution. Make voting harder. I urge Congress to propose a constitutional amendment that would require young Americans to earn the right to vote by fulfilling a civic duty requirement. 
The amendment would raise the voting age to 25, except for young adults who either fulfill a service requirement, at least six months in the United States military, or a first responder role, or pass the civics test administered to naturalized immigrants. Critics cry Jim Crow, but there's nothing racial about the idea. Black Americans already serve in the military at a higher than average rate, and immigrants have to pass the test regardless of race. We tie civic duty to the privileges of citizenship in other ways. Jury duty is compulsory, and every male United States citizen is required to register with Selective Service on reaching adulthood. The main justification in 1971 for the 26th Amendment, which lowered the voting age to 18, was the military draft. That civic duty now seems foreign to us is the real problem. Some Democrats now urge the voting age be lowered to 16, noting that we already allow teens that age to drive motor vehicles. But voting is more than a physical act. It is the expression of a duty we bear as citizens. Serving your nation, knowing something about your nation, or at least living in your nation for a short time as an adult isn't too much to ask. Our lost civic pride won't reappear automatically. Reviving it will require boldness. Now Joe Queenan's article, The Ugly World of Add-on Fees for Everything. I couldn't watch the lowly Colorado Rockies get smacked around by my Philadelphia Phillies recently. I forgot that the TV broadcast was only on Peacock. Though my subscription to Major League Baseball streaming service allows me to watch almost every Phillies game from my home in New York, this one required $4.95 for a monthly Peacock subscription, even if you had local TV in Philadelphia. It's not only Peacock, which has a bunch of games reserved. There are also games that only appear on Amazon or Apple TV Plus or YouTube TV. Worse, These broadcasters generally use announcers who don't normally cover your teams. This ruins everything. Fans form lifelong relationships with local announcers. In some towns, they put up statues to these guys. But you can't have a relationship with someone who only does two or three games a year and mispronounces the closer's name and doesn't know that the fans hate the first baseman and doesn't know that the fans hate him. I'm now dreading the thought other businesses will institute this kind of maddening illogical policy, charging premiums on certain days for inferior products, because here's how it could look. You go to the diner on Sunday morning, all set for your usual heaping pile of flapjacks with sausage and home fries, and it turns out that on a certain Sunday, unless you pay a $4.95 supplement, You can only get oatmeal or a corn muffin. And even if you pay extra, the effervescent waitress you love to banter with has been furloughed for the day, replaced by a dour, hatchet-faced man with no bantering skills. Or, planning on some relaxing trout fishing this weekend? Sorry, the river is closed to non-subscribers every third Saturday. So are the brooks. You'll just have to pay a one-time charge and settle for a creek. 
At nursery school drop-off, you find out that the kids can't play with the stuffed pig on Tuesdays unless you fork over the $4.95 for the stuffed pig supplement. What do you mean you didn't know? Didn't you read the fine print in the school's mission statement? Bruce Springsteen won't play Born to Run because it's in the key of E major, which costs extra at Friday concerts, plus the saxophone solo will be played on the kazoo. Without receiving a supplement, Taylor Swift is not doing any breakup songs. And the Chicago Symphony Orchestra has blacked out anything by Beethoven on the first of the month. Unless you pony up extra, you'll have to settle for Sibelius. That big upfront fee you paid for the privilege of buying a ticket? Nope, it doesn't cover that. Surprise add-ons could also apply to air travel. Besides the extra fees we're already paying for having bags or having seats. On Supplement Sunday, you learn after takeoff, your plane won't land in Dallas or Houston unless you pay extra. Otherwise, you'll just have to make do with Lubbock. Car travel isn't exempt either. You want gas in the middle of the night while driving across Death Valley? Fine, but it's subscription only on Saturday nights at the highway rest stop. Hope you have enough fuel to make it to the station 30 miles down that dirt road. Diesel only, by the way. We'd even need to pay more attention to medical checkups. Did you realize that no one can check your kidney function or give you an EKG on the third Thursday of the month? You didn't get that text about a supplement to see your regular proctologist instead of a physician's assistant? Same deal at the dentist. Do you seriously want to risk getting that root canal done by the trainee and the dentist? Nope, didn't think so. That'll be an extra $4.95, please. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.